Podcast One. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the term budgie smugglers is Australian slang for men's close-fitting swimming trunks. <laughs> it's also an iconic Australian brand, slowly but surely being built by today's guest and chief smuggler, as he calls himself, Adam Linforth. It's an eye-popping episode 525 of the 11-year-old award-winning small business big marketing podcast. Well, I say, welcome to a small business marketing show where successful small business owners share their souls to take your marketing straight to the lead. Now, here's your host, Mr. Tim Reed. And welcome back to your weekly dose of in-your-face marketing. I'm your host, Timbo Reed. You infinitely more importantly, are a motivated business owner and you are so, so, so ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. Big episode today. We find out why budgie smugglers owner Adam Linforth is in no rush to build an iconic Australian brand. This week's monster prize draw winner lost it all and now finds himself back at the foot of the mountain and raring to go. Love that story. Plus, I let you in on next week's New York-based guest, who in his own words, has killed Zoom. As per usual, team, there is marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. Hey, Timbo, it's Chris Sullivan here from your local tyre truck with um, a bit of uh, info about how I have used the small business big marketing podcast in my business. The best marketing idea that I've uh, found on one of your podcasts was from Steve Sims. He uh, had the idea of you know sending a customer a, a letter or a snippet out of a magazine or even a postcard after a sale. So we do this currently uh, around about two or three weeks later after one of our sales of tyres to our customers. We'll send them a, a postcard uh, with a bit, of a, uh, a bit of a thank you and also noting down something that we remember about them. So I thank you immensely. Best of luck for the future, mate. Hey, thank you so much, Chris, mate. You are a long-time listener. I know you love the show. I know you love implementing ideas from it. And for that, I am eternally grateful and well done to you for getting the results. You deserve them. Everyone else, give me a buzz. 0480 015 150. And tell me a marketing idea that's working for you. Give me some feedback on my podcast. Um, Maybe you just want to share something with me or ask me a question. I'd love to hear from you. 0480-015-150. Now, if you're a long-time listener, you know that I love everything about ocean swimming. Most days, pulling on the speedos and swimming two or three K off Noosa's beautiful main beach with a bunch of mates. <laughs> it's not a pretty sight, but geez, we love it. So when I had the opportunity to interview Adam Linforth, the owner of Budgie Smugglers, I jumped at it. Between you and I, it's a brand I'd love to own. Adam bought the business back in 2008 when it was selling 1,000 pairs a year. Today, well over 100,000 pairs of Budgie Smugglers are sold around the world, plus he's added a women's and a kids' range. Now, there's a lot to love about the Budgie Smugglers brand and the way Adam's growing it, but... 
I also think he's leaving a fair bit of dough on the table. You may sense my frustration during this chat, so I'll share with you what I think he could be doing better after the interview. I started off by asking Adam how he came to owning this legendary Australian brand. It was all a bit of a sort of happy accident. So the actual company Budgie Smuggler had been around for a couple of years before, a few years before I came along. And I was on a beach in Mexico one day and I saw a couple of blokes wearing a pair of sort of fluoro-ish speedos with just the words Budgie Smuggler on the back, got talking to them. Um, I had a bit of a background in surf life saving and that sort of thing and was pretty comfortable in a pair of speedo style swimwear. Um, so yeah, we had a yarn and then when I got back to Australia, hit him up, started helping out running the odd errand for them. And then a couple of years after that ended up sort of owning the business, which at that stage they had a sort of, there was a website set up and I think they were doing just under, maybe under a thousand pairs a year sort of thing. So it was, it was in its, in its infancy, but, um, yeah, that was that was how it all began in two thousand and eight for me. What, what was your attraction? You were a bit of a surf lifesaver, and um, the speedos weren't doing it for you. But what was the particular? Was it just the name? Yeah, I love the name, and I'd been on a tour through Europe just before with this bloke from um, Canada, Eric Norgren, and he he we were doing like a boat trip, and he said to me that he's got this sort of weird tradition that him and his friends do when they go on holidays, and would I like to be a part of it? I said, oh, what, well, what is it? And he's like, we, we get in. <laughs> you ask nervously. We get into a pair of the most offensive looking uh, Speedo style swimwear that we can find and we get an outrageous hat like, you know, an Akubra or a Mexican hat or I, I went with a little sort of Irish Peaky Blinders number and that's all we wear for the whole trip. And so we did that around like Croatia and that. Uh, this is like maybe 2006 and it just got a really good, good reaction. Um, and so then when I saw Budgie Smuggler come along and there was a name with it, I was like, oh, this could be a, this could be a goer. Were you looking to buy a business, Adam, or was it just something that, you know, you know opportunistic? Yeah. So I'd done a kind of traditional pathway in terms of, I went to uni, did an arts and commerce degree and started work at a bank. And pretty quickly on, I realized, nah, this is not for me. And so I was looking around to just do something else and buying or or starting a business was was one of them. And so Budgie Smuggler popped up along that time and it took about oh, close to 12 months before it sort of the, the sale, I guess, happened. The original owner or main owner was a bloke, Lockie Harris, who was actually Kevin Rudd's press secretary. Of course he was. And like, <laughs> sure it wasn't Tony Abbott's press secretary. No, no. Uh, came up with like Kevin 07 and that ah. sort of thing. So... Yeah, so Lockie, once they won in 2007... Um, He's like, mate, I'm out of here. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. So the actual day that it happened, he just kind of called me and was like, mate, I need to fly out to, uh, I think, New York with the Prime Minister and his cousin, um, Dave, who'd been running it for him, was wanting to do some other things as well. So it, it, it kind of... The, the stock literally turned up later that afternoon and with a password to the website, and it's like, we'll sort out the paperwork... <laughs> Uh, when I'm back, which was you know a couple of weeks, <laughs> couple of weeks later, Mate, so, that's awesome. There so wasn't like um, a SWOT analysis or any deep business planning. It was just a bit of a bit of gut feel, and also knowing the certitude that working for a big company wasn't something that I wanted to do. So let's take a punt on on something else. 
And thank you for using the word certitude, Adam. It hasn't been used on 525 episodes of this podcast. And uh, There's a bloke, Sam Perry, who is on the Grey Cricketer podcast, and he used that word with me yesterday, and I didn't know what it meant, <laughs> so... It's 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 printed in my in my brain. It's it's impressive, mate. I'm just going to rewrite some of these questions to sound a little bit smarter than I currently do, <laughs> um, and I'm going to try and build certitude into uh, the balance of the interview. Tell me um, a, a cheeky question. Do you mind if I ask what you paid for it? I won't give away the exact figure, but like it was a couple of years' salary for a graduate at a bank at the time. Right, so about twenty-two grand. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tell me, you you went and borrowed from your parents. Describe that conversation. Mum and Dad uh, want to buy a company called Budgie Smugglers. What are Budgie Smugglers, son? Sure. So I'd saved up about I had about a quarter of the money good to go, and I needed the other three quarters. I was working at a bank in business lending, so I knew that from the financials that they wouldn't lend to me because, you know, it was turning over. I, I think I paid sort of double what it was turning over and the business was losing money. So, like, on, on paper, this is not a deal at all. And my dad had the same sort of view that he thought it was a bit crazy, but it was actually my uh, my mum. Uh, mum's from Poland originally and she just thinks the name Budgie Smuggler is hilarious. So <laughs> she was like, we'll, um, we'll back you. I thought I'd be able to pay him back within a year or two, but it took about it took about eight years. The business was sort of growing. We needed money to fund it, so I just kind of had that debt hanging around for a for a long time. But fortunately, now we're we've got to the point where we're in the clear. I, I think it's really interesting. You that was in is it two thousand six or two thousand and eight? You two thousand and eight. So you you didn't go full time in the budgie smuggler business until 2016. So you had eight <laughs> years of, you've gone and dropped, I'm going to say, 100 grand on buying an unproven business with a funky name that your mum loves. <laughs> yeah, this is not painting too good a picture, is it? Oh, my mum likes it. Mate, I love it. I, I'm, I'm one of these business slash marketing guys who operates from the gut. I've had many guests who operate from the head and, you know, all this kind of stuff. You clearly, you're in my camp. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it. I, I too would have seen the upside of a brand called, just on the name alone. Um, yeah. But why did you take that long? To, to get into the business because, again, I'm, and I'm going to guess that when you went full-time in the budgie smuggler business, things probably took off. Yeah, it took a, I mean, we've, we've kind of almost every year since inception had growth between 30 and 70%, including this year, you know, like so it's wow. it's always been within that range. We've never had like a Justin Bieber moment or something where he wears it and then it just goes out of control. The best years have been at that 70% end, the worst years have been at the, the sort of 30% end. But what kind of sidetracked me, I guess, was I started, uh, one of my mates at uni, Aboriginal bloke called Jack Manning Bancroft, started a mentoring program for Indigenous high school kids. And then I ended up becoming the finance director, inverted commas, for that. But there was only like two staff there. But within like four or five months, there was 10 staff. And he asked me to come across full-time on that. Well, it was originally sort of four days per week. And then I got kind of heavily focused on that for the next six, seven years. So I was traveling around Australia, building partnerships with universities, government, corporate groups. But are you you that incredibly passionate about, and what an awesome project, you know, uh, mentoring Aboriginal kids. Are you that passionate that despite the fact that you've got a debt over here to mum and dad and a business that probably is screaming for 
some full-time love from its owner. You just couldn't you, you just couldn't go there? Yeah, well, I, I kind of had a long-term view. Like I was 20, I was young, 23 or something like that. And so I also had some challenges with Budgie Smuggler in terms of like no one was actually wearing Budgie Smugglers at that time. So for the business to reach any sort of scale, we had to kind of change the perception of what a, a budgie smuggler wearer was, that it wasn't this sort of ripped up, oiled Adonis or old sort of bloke <laughs> sitting at the uh, park with the leathery kind of skin. We had to find, uh, we had to rebuild that definition. So I knew that that was going to take a long time. Like board shorts were past the knees at this this point, if you remember um, back in time not that long ago. So I knew that that was going to take a bit of time. So I just kind of buckled into that kind of, if we can get 50% year-on-year growth, then I knew that in five years we'd be 10 times as big and in 10 times, 10 years we'd be 100 times as big. Jeez, man. Love a bit of business confidence. Yeah, but if you've got a 10-year horizon, it's a, it's it's okay. And then because I had an income coming in from from AIM, which was the, the mentoring program, um, I didn't have to rely on making maybe the shortcuts to growth at that point in time that were available to me. So we've always made our stock in Australia. Every week for the past 12 years, someone hit me up, why are you making in Australia? Make it overseas for for cheaper. But for me, it was very important that when you put on a pair of budgie smugglers that you feel something, that it is a part of Australia, that it's crafted here. And that was kind of a, a, a unique part of the brand. So... How much money do you reckon you're leaving on the table by, well, what's, no, what's the opportunity cost of not having budgie smugglers uh, manufactured in China and what's the value, can you quantify this, of having them made in Australia and people feeling that? There's two times to answer your question, I guess. If you look back 10 years ago, it was they were really expensive to, to make here and our volumes were relatively low, but you're talking at like over 20 bucks a pair when you could be getting it for, you know, closer to five, six, seven dollars in China. Wow. But you have to order a thousand per colour in China or wherever overseas you're getting it made, Bali, places like that. So that has its own difficulty. But the bonus of that is that then options like retailing at City Beach, Surfection, David Jones, places like that are all on the table. By making in Australia, all those options were off the table because the cost of production was too high. We actually were the top selling item in Surfection for a while, but we were making like $2 a unit. And so I was selling, you know, 3,000 units, I'm making five grand. I'm like, I can sell 300 online and, and make nearly as much. What government support do you get? So none until... COVID. <laughs> Four years ago, well, we took advantage of a thing called the um, Export Market Development Grant. So this is a really good one for businesses that are looking to grow overseas. And I think they're going to, they're looking to accelerate and, and make this even better now. Historically, you had to spend the money, submit your thing, and then like nine months later, you'd get reimbursed for 50% of your costs. It was quite a process. Yeah, where they're a lot quicker a lot quicker with it now, encouraging Australian businesses to to grow overseas. So that, that's been the main one we've taken advantage of. But with the manufacturing, the costs in Australia have actually come down quite a lot with kind of, you know, inverted commas, advanced manufacturing. So, you know, in the olden days, we had to heat seal press 
uh, all the logos and stuff onto the pairs. Now it's all digital sublimation printing and then it goes into a laser cutter which cuts it out. So it's only really the sewing um, where there's a gap. So that pricing, it's now about, let's say, 60 70% more expensive to make in Australia. But like one of the secrets that not everyone knows about manufacturing overseas is about one third of all goods that are mass produced are destroyed. They never make it to market. So if you take out like the third that you're not having to discount towards zero or literally destroy, you know, you see Burberry handbags and places like that where yes. they literally just burn, <laughs> burn the kit. So when it's only 50, 60% more expensive, and you can make in the volumes that you want, you know, with the way manufacturing's going, I think, um, you know, at the moment we're probably one of the largest clothing manufacturers in Australia, but you, you'll see a lot more coming back because it's just got easier yeah, easier right. to do. Um, and then there's other things. The Australian dollar at one point was like a dollar ten US. Now it's back at 70 cents. So there's 50 cents, you know, 50% more competitive making stuff in Australia is as well. So... Very happy that we've stuck it out here. Well, it sounds to me, Adam, as though it gives you a sense of certitude. <laughs> 100%. I don't even know whether I use that word correctly, but we'll go with it. Um, mate, when did you realise that um, the word budgie in the brand name was spelt incorrectly? It's You're spelling it B-U-D-G-Y. Obviously, the correct spelling is B-U-D-G-I-E. When did you realise and when did you decide, well, it doesn't matter? Oh, there's a couple of funny stories on the name, but yeah, it, it was early on the guys um, who made them. You had to make a plate at this point in time to make to make the prints to put the logo or the word on the back, and they cost like a few hundred bucks to set up, and then you need to make 500 or 1,000 at a time, which might be two bucks each of the prints for it to be worthwhile. So they'd gone and set up the plate and then all the coloured prints and then made them and then realised the no. <laughs> the spelling of the word was wrong. You had one job. Yeah, one job. So they just decided to roll with it. So, you know, that's it's kind of funny. We actually made the Oxford English Dictionary a few years ago, 2016, alongside the words glamping and wedding tackle. So that's great. We're big in England. So the word budgie smuggler is in the English Oxford Dictionary. How do you find that out? Do you like do you get a letter from the Queen or <laughs> what's that? It, yeah, no, it just popped up in the newspaper. I think the other one, <laughs> so I was in the UK for, for the last four years, sort of we set up a UK website and building Budgie Smuggler over there. But in 2018, so I'd only been there for two years, we got voted the most hated item of clothing in the UK ahead of turtlenecks and Crocs. So I was only there. I thought, it was, you know, if you're not first, you're last. It was, Quite an achievement to get there. Yeah, that's right. That quickly. But I actually like Crocs as well, so I, I don't know, maybe... Um, yeah, I'm, I, um, I'm in two minds about Crocs. I don't mind the odd turtleneck, uh, you know, RIP Steve Jobs, um, but I, yeah, the Crocs. I do have a pair of Croc deck shoes, which are very handy when I go yachting on my 100-foot uh, trimaran, which I don't own or have or never will. Um, <laughs> tell me, um, interesting, I, more than one person who I said I'm interviewing the owner of Budgie Smuggler uh, today said to me, geez, I didn't realise Budgie Smuggler was an actual brand. I thought it was just a generic term for the category. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I guess it means we've got a long way to go to getting the word out there about about smuggling. So 
it's probably got its pluses as well that, you know, the term's used quite a lot, so it's in people's mind. And also when people go to search for it online, that's our main our main method of, of sales. Um, they can just jump online, type in the word. It's easy to remember. It's implant in, in, implanted in the Australian psyche, I guess. So I think the name is a huge a huge benefit, but a long way to go before, you know, the average man or all the people on the street sort of know we are a brand. I, I totally agree with that. And I want to have, I, I think it's a very undermarketed brand. I want to, and I, I, I want to touch on that later on, but I want to understand a bit more about the business first. Um, now, budgie smugglers by virtue of the name is a men's, is a, is a piece of men's clothing, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's where you smuggle your budgie, so to speak. <laughs> um, You've got female budgie smugglers, which I feel when I looked at your website and have seen the range, it feels like that's a bit like Victoria's Secrets having a men's lingerie brand, a men's lingerie range. What am I missing there? Why why didn't you grow, build out the men's side of budgie smugglers instead of going into women's and kids? I would love to say it was my decision, but we basically about. Nine years ago, we held an event and all the blokes were running around in smugglers and girls sort of came up to us and said, hey, we want something similar um, that has the same ethos. So, you know, we've tried to build budgie smuggler around people you want to have beers with. And there wasn't really a a female brand doing that. And so that was the the kickoff of Smuglettes. It's actually about 25% of sales. It's, it's, yeah, it's growing pretty... um, is it really? Pretty quickly. In the UK, I think it's even a little bit higher than that. So, yeah, it's doing doing pretty well. Interesting because I, I, I look at it and I go, you know, it is a, like I said, by virtue of the name, it is men's, but you've really got, got a huge amount of skews. You've got not only men's, ladies and kids, but within that you've got underwear, face masks, interesting, obvious pivot, I guess, you know, one pieces, booty shorts, you've got rash vests, you've got socks, bum bags, stubby coolers. The, the list goes on and on. Have you got too many, it's not SKUs, too many different product products in your range? And does the 80-20 rule apply? Well, my brother does all the uh, all the production for it. So he'd probably agree with you that keeping a track of manufacturing it all is a bit of a headache. The 80-20 rule almost applies. Yeah, with sort of 60% of sales, I guess, are just the core men's product and there's only one cut. And we just changed that across about 100, I don't know, we've probably got maybe 400 different prints that you can get on it sort of stock Wow! ready. Whereas women's, which is only 25% of the business, but we've got three or four different one pieces, three or four different bottoms, three or four different tops. Women's swimwear is a lot trickier, but it's very important for us that, you know, when there's a family holiday that mum, dad, kids, everyone can be repping in it. It's a little bit weird when you see, I saw it on the beach actually just the weekend just gone where dad and his two sons were in the same designed shorts. It's sort of like husband and wife wearing the same leisure suit and walking along the promenade. Isn't it a bit weird? I love a family that smuggles together. It's one of the the more heartwarming things when you see, (laughs) you know, three generations all kitted out in in fluoro rubber duckies. It's, It's literally, 
I, I love it, but um, uh, others take offence. Us, us fashionistas take offence. <laughs> Tell me, um, just on the design process, because you have, I mean, 400 different designs. I'm looking at your website right now. Everything from you've got Bubble Mobile, which is obviously a tribute to Movember. Uh, you've got some licensed products, VB, Bundaberg, Victoria Bitter, Bundaberg Rum, and then you've just got design after design after design, pineapples and bananas and this and that. Uh, how does that happen? You've got someone sitting there going, oh, I think we should do a pina colada smuggler. We should do this or that. You know, do you just keep adding? Yeah, so that's another one that um, area where we invest a fair bit of time and effort. So a lot of fashion um, sort of brands, I guess, will outsource their design and, you know, chuck it on the one of the open internet platforms to get people to, to do the design and rip it from that, whereas... We've got sort of a dozen full-time staff and four of them are designers. Wow. So that that's a really key part of our business. And we sell about a third of all our sales is custom swimwear for sports clubs, but mainly for sports clubs, but also for Bucks weekends, hands, um, teams traveling overseas. So that's a huge part of the business. And some of them will often come up with, you know, the most creative and best ideas and we'll often just say, hey, we love this design so much. Do you mind if we adjust it or, or repurpose it as a, as a stock pair? So it's actually sort of... Give us an example. Oh, it's a good question. Yeah, well, some of the early some of the early pineapple ones, the sailor stripes, which were one of our best-selling pairs, just a classic oh, yeah. striped pair with an anchor on the front um, left to go with your croc shoes. <laughs> uh, they were just someone saying, hey, you need that. Donuts, like oh, I get people at the pub all the time just pestering me like, you need to do... Donuts, 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 like the Simpsons kind of donuts. And then eventually we did it and uh, the bloke Giovanni, he was right. So Gio, shout outs to you. It was one of our, the Crispy Dreams are one of our best sellers for a, for a long time and they're still in the range. Tell me, it's quite interesting. I mean, as personalising products is, is just a really cool thing and um, as the technology becomes easier to do, I think we'll probably see more of that. That's incredible that 33% of the whole budgie smuggler business is custom design. I think that's fantastic. I can imagine that growing. Um, licensing, you yep. have, it looks to me like you have proper license agreements with Victoria Bitter, yep. big beer brand in Australia, and Bundaberg Rum. Um, how does that work? Do you go, do you meet up with them and say, hey, listen, can we, you know, pay you a, a fee to make smugglers from your brand or do they, you know, is it a kind of mutually agreed partnership? We had Bundaberg come along first, so someone from Bundy reached out to see if we could do a pair. It was around every eighth case or something that you bought, you'd you'd win a pair, and then that's then then people were like, where can we get these? We really want to buy them. So once the um, competition had gone ran its course, that became a licensing partnership. VB have been awesome to work with this year. They sort of wanted to do. I th- think with the sort of post-COVID or not post-COVID, but during COVID, wanted to do something with an Australian brand rather than doing the kind of, you know, cheap made overseas kind of merchandise, wanted to do something that was made in Australia with some some sort of craftsmanship behind it. So they've been awesome. So um, yeah, we worked out a range with them and um, released that recently. And it's one of our, one of our top selling pairs. And then probably the other main license agreements we have are with the sort of sporting code. So league, AFL, rugby union. And again, I think a, a lot of the players are wearing budgie smugglers when they play. Or, or you just hope 
Deck him, deck him, please deck him. <laughs> Definitely in league and in league and union, it's it's uh, that they do make the odd appearance, and so yeah, it made sense if the players are wearing it to have a pair that's with the club colours, the national colours. Absolutely. When you do a club, do you then send every single player a couple of pairs in the hope that the whole team's wearing them? Because someone always gets dacked, right? And that goes on national TV. Yeah, yeah, occasionally. Like, um, we sort of just, like, return return the love. So when we notice that there's a player who's who's wearing them, we'll look after them and get some pairs to them to get to the, to the other players in the team who are, who are keen smugglers. Let's talk about distribution, Adam. You have got a store in Manly, which I'd like to understand why you have one store and why is it in Manly, albeit it's a great swimming surf location in Australia. And then everything else is just via budgiesmuggler.com.au. So one part of me thinks, well, they're, they're really hard to buy or you could argue they're really easy to buy because you just go online. But why have you limited? You don't. You, you can't buy them in department stores. You don't have retail stores around Australia. Tell me your distribution strategy. Yeah, so I think it went back to those early days when the ability to make money from doing it at scale through department stores or chain stores wasn't really there. So we had to we had to focus on on online. Similarly, now we probably could um, go through um, those channels. Now there would be enough of a margin, but I'm just kind of a bit over it to be honest. Like everyone. <laughs> reselling your stuff like we had a bad experience with one of the retailers where we were selling really well and they got bought by another business and I went into the shop and our stuff was kind of hidden out the back and I'm like what what's going on here we're one of the top selling items and they're like oh no we only put our home brands in the good position and so part of it is just wanting to have control over the brand like we've had most of the big players trying to get us onto their platforms and I'm like why am I going on platform to give Jeff Bezos more money? Like, I'm not interested. If people want it, um, you can get it. You know, we've only got the one place you can get it and just try and cut out the the number of middlemen or sets of hands that goes on. And, and we are looking to open more retail stores. And I, I believe that, you know, I think rents were out of control in Australia for a long time. Like, I think the game's up on that. Like, the, the rents were probably inflated at least 50%, particularly in you know, your higher end, like your busy places, you look at the numbers and like we don't, I'm self-funded. It's just all all from myself. So I don't have like this bazillion dollars to put into a store to pay a landlord overs. And, you know, we trade pretty well. So I'm like, I'm looking at a lot of the brands that are there and they're not making money. Uh, Interesting. So self-funded, you put everything you make, you put back into the business, uh, debt-free, that's how you like to roll? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it means that our growth probably, you know, we rely a lot on on word of mouth. We, we probably tap out at about 60, 70% growth before we couldn't, you know, fund anymore. But again, I've got like a, I've got plenty of time here, you know, touch wood. So I get the sense, Adam, having just met you, but having known about the brand for many years, and we're going to talk about how you go about marketing in a minute. Maybe I should hold this statement till after that, but I can't. I get the sense that you're happy to, to roll along. Whilst you might be wanting to build an empire, you're wanting to build an empire slowly in your own time, debt-free, 
without the pressures that come with being a wholesaler to a large department store who want to control how you do business and, you know, you're your own person, despite having what I would argue is a is an iconic Australian brand already, which is, a, you know, well done, buddy. I think it's awesome. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I'm making enough money to live. I can go on holidays. Happy days. I don't need the 100-foot yacht just yet. You know, I'm happy with the Crocs. Uh, <laughs> got the Crocs, that's Crocs all you and- need. You walk around and those people probably think you got the 100-foot trimaran. Uh, we want to grow firmly, but I don't have too much appetite to, like if someone gave us a whole lot of money, I'm like, like how would we spend it? Like I have had this, we have had people sort of offer. No doubt. I just feel that it, people can sense when money sort of pumped into a brand and it goes beyond the core following of people who understand it. And what's important for us is, you know, most of them are kind of labelled with budgie smuggled on the back. So when someone's wearing it, they gotta, they got to get it. And if it changes because we've got, you know, billboards everywhere and it's not that kind of people who are wearing it and get that it's a bit of a laugh and we're not taking ourselves too seriously, I fear that we'll lose the core audience. So for me, it's always been about building that that core following. And I guess like, yeah, we talk about sort of loyal growth. And I remember my grandfather, he was a cash register salesman back in the day. And he used to tell me a story about how, or say to me that the the best customers are the ones that you've already got. And I think a lot of people lose sight of that in, in search of, you know, three times, five times growth. And he used to work for a company called NCR, the National Cash Register Company, American firm. And he worked for them for many years, retired, and then another firm recruited him and he switched all of Coles and Woolworths to this other company's cash registers, retired again, and then three or four years later got recruited by NCR again <laughs> and then transferred them all back to, to NCR because people had lost sight of the people that were already in the tent. And now... Every time I go into Coles and Woolworths, their FPOS machines are NCR and I sort of think of my grandfather and I think, oh, you've got to look after the the people you've already got. So we do want to grow, but we're going to get there in our own way. Yeah, I love that. Let's talk about a bit more about growth. Your first five years of owning the business, you're selling 1,000 units a year. After five years, something caught on and you're doing 10,000 units a year. Now you're doing over 100,000 units a year. So can you you reflect on some of those kind of inflection points where things kicked off? I mean, what took you from 1,000 to 10,000? What took you from 10,000 to 100,000? Was it a marketing campaign? Was it a design? Was it the fact that you entered the business full time and things exploded? Around the 10,000 marks when we got our first full-time employee, bloke Brendan Hartman, who's still with us today, is the general manager of it. So that was a big, a big inflection point for us and we've since added a team since then. But getting that first person full-time, like, you know, when I didn't have to uh, pick up, like be having two mobile phones to try and... Um, Try and be running that running the business when people are trying to chase an order that they've lost. So that that was a huge. When we had the the money to be able to invest in a full time staff member and, and build a team, that was a big um, that was a big step forward. I, I think me coming on board it did help. I, I first went you know at this stage we had about three or four full time staff in Australia, and they were doing a pretty good job of of running the business here. So it would have kind of been weird for me to come in and 
be working with them on a day-to-day basis. So I actually packed up shop and moved to the UK, which was our biggest sort of export market, I guess, at the time, and went to build the business over there. So we've now got a a UK-based website as well, which services sort of the UK and Europe and and a team of three or four there. But one of the unusual benefits, I guess, of that time in the UK, like when I first got there, I was just on my own for large periods of time and it was back to the early days where you'd have like a couple of days with no orders and that it's a crushing feeling. Like whenever I, you know, had like those market stall days where you do a stall and it costs you more money to do the stall than you make or the only people that buy stuff are your family and friends, like that's soul-destroying kind of stuff. How'd to, you push through? Um, combination of maybe naivety and, and also just learning, you know, what, what are the right marketplaces to go to. The early days in Australia when there was kind of no orders coming through for multiple days, it is like you do question your sanity. I mean, pretty much everyone at the time of the purchase thought I'd lost the plot a little bit. They were like, Nate, no one wears these anymore. You've got Barclays here, like, have you signed the paperwork? Like, back out of it, literally. <laughs> right. um, but I, I just had a, a gut feel that in the very long run, I guess, you know, if there's an insight, I sort of knew that wearing smugglers was better than wearing shorts and what we need to do is not compete with people who are selling Speedos but can get the mindset so people who are wearing shorts can transition to to just being smugglers and if we could do that we're we're on course for for a successful um, business I reflect on how often I buy a pair of and dare I say speedos that's going to change Adam uh, after this conversation yeah. <laughs> they I probably buy a pair every three or four years <laughs> sounds disgusting doesn't it I wash Good. them I wash them guys I, lo- I love seeing a well-worn in pair I think it's I do too. They fade on the line, and you know, yeah. It's um, but but that's a long buying cycle. How do you encourage people, uh, or or don't you want to? Because you don't want to grow too quickly. Um, how do you encourage people to buy a pair? Because you know, women like my girlfriend Sarah, she buys a pair of bathers at least once a year, maybe two, and I'm sure that's a female thing. Whereas blokes don't really care. How do you how do you kind of expedite that? They're very different markets. You're right. They're like girls will buy three and four sets a year. Whereas blokes will buy like, yeah, one every couple of years sort of thing. <laughs> I, I, I don't mind that if they are well worn in. Like, you know, we're trying to bring out stuff that captivates people's imagination and we've got some people who buy every pair. <laughs> I was going to say, there'd be a couple of nutters out there and hello to all you nutters. I love, I love a good nutter who have probably got every design, all 400 designs hanging neatly in the wardrobe, like something out of Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> I'm going to have to hit them up at some point if because we're doing a museum of smugglers because we don't actually have all the pairs. Now we put them aside, but there's some people who've bought, one bloke buys every pair in two different sizes, like a 36 and a 38. But, yeah, so I guess we're trying to bring out stuff that people love and that gives them – did you have Seth Godin on the show? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So um, did he tell you about the word otaku? Nope. Okay, so, like, it's a Japanese word that means, like, when people – I don't know, feel something like say it's a kebab shop and they'll drive across Tokyo to get to this kebab shop because there's something really cool about it. I, I guess we're trying to foster and build that, you know, something remarkable about it um, that makes people feel something and, and want to buy it. Wanna buy it. And then we're also encouraging people to to wear them 
you know, more. And like a pair of smugglers uses a, a fifth the the plastic of a pair of board shorts. So environmentally, huh. they're a better um, they're a better option. But yeah, if people are only buying one a year, that that's okay. It's okay. You don't want to grow too quickly, mate. I just want you to have a relax. I want you to be able to, you know, what are you on there? The kombucha. I want you to cover your kombucha costs. I want you to be able to. I'm not that relaxed. Like, you know, I, I... <laughs> mate, mate, you sound it. <laughs> I love it. I'm the one who lives on the bloody, you know, on, at the beach. I should be the one relaxed. I'm, I'm more hyped than you are. Now, here we go. Gloves are off, Adam. Are you ready? We've had this conversation of I've, I've softened you for the blow. Go for it. I, I ocean swim every day. Yeah. Of every week, of every month. I have a pair of speedos on every single day, as do all my swim team, all the all the old crusty blokes that I swim with. Beautiful. You'll find me on Noosa Main Beach every morning. That said, the brand isn't in my face. The only time I see Budgie Smuggler is every now and then a bloke will walk past with the word Budgie Smuggler written on the back of his bathers. And we all look at it and we all laugh and we go, that's awesome. Love it, love it, love it. We're all wearing speedos. And I just wonder why isn't, if there was one brand that should be in my face, given that, you know, with remarketing and Google listening and you know, it, it, the ads that pop up are relevant to us these days, I love that. I'm that bloke whose your brand should be in my face all the time and I should have three pairs in my Speedo wardrobe. What am I missing? What are you getting wrong or is it just an anomaly? We probably are getting it a bit wrong if we're missing the entire ocean swimming fraternity in Queensland. So, you know, me a culprit. We're probably yeah, we're probably missing a trick if if we're missing you that much. I think maybe one specific reason for the non-retargeting. Well, we've pretty much turned it all off now. Actually, we might have the age demographic set, you know, sub forty. But uh, yeah, you probably just just creep creep crept out of it. Um, <laughs> but the other kind of reason is that we haven't really focused on 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 water on swimming per se. So, of course, you wouldn't. What do you got? Skiing? There, yeah, no, we do. Seriously, <laughs> we'd be the number one swimwear brand on the ski slopes. If you say every winter, like there's heaps of people skiing and smugglers, I'm being deadly serious. So, what's that about? Well, part of the theories around, um, you know, one of the first kind of rules of business, I guess, is don't compete. So, you know, everyone, like you grow up thinking, I'm going to get into a business, I'm going to compete on price or quality or whatever it is. But the best answer is to try and find where you where there isn't competition and to move towards that space. So like, you know, there's two ways to build a market, right? You can try and take someone else's or create a new one. And so in our case, take pool swimming as an example. That's a super competitive space. So you go into a pool and try and sell your stuff, companies like like Speedo, Arena, Zogs, others, they've got those places on lockdown and the athletes as well. It's a it's an area that's, you know, tough to compete or if you want to, you're going to have to have the gloves off pretty hard. So for us, our main focus is actually around people who uh, completely wouldn't think about smuggling necessarily and might be followers of AFL rugby league, which are, you know, all big sports and focusing on that. But but I think we can pivot a little bit more back to the to the water sports. I was 
speaking with the guys in the UK the other day and I was like, wow, we actually have never actually even spoken to a, to a pool or a swimming group. So wow, maybe it's some low-hanging fruit that for us to have a look at. But but, but it's more around, it also just kind of slightly humorous that we, we've built a swimwear company out of people that don't swim. I think there is a gap. I mean, again, you know, the, you have got your Speedos, your Zogs, your Arena brands and Speedo, we all grew up with Speedo, Zogs and Arena to a lesser extent, but I think there is an opportunity, which I think Budgie Smuggler own, which is personality. It's a smile and the world needs more smiles. You bought this business because it put a smile on your face. Your mum gave you the dough because she liked the name. You know that when when people walk past in a pair of Budgie Smugglers and others look at them, they smile. And and I think there's no smile around a Speedo or an Arena or, an, or a Zog brand. They're good brands. But I just think, you know, whether you're talking about pool swimmers, ocean swimmers, skiers, Big big blokes, little blokes, whatever. I just think there is there is a great opportunity to really drive home that smile. Now I know you do it. I've looked at your Instagram. There are some smiles on it for sure, and I love this promotion that you run each year called Australia's Most Ordinary Rig. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so it's a competition to find you know literally the most ordinary rig physique. In Australia. So how it started was we were looking at doing like some sort of faux Victoria's Secret style parade just to take the piss out of it. Guys with wings like toilet seats or whatever, just as a as a bit of a laugh. And then we had these kids come into the office one day, like awesome bunch of young kids, Western Sydney kids, rats tails, and they were off to um, schoolies and they were getting their smugglers. And one of them mentioned to me, oh, we've been getting shredded for schoolies. And I thought, oh, I don't know if that's a good thing. And I guess Instagram was sort of, this is four or five years ago, really emerging at this time. And a lot of the body image concerns that have been around, in, you know, with women for a long time was starting to creep into the to the male psych and the young male psych. And if these kids are really focused on how they look for schoolies, I'm like, well, we need to do something to to counter that. And then the concept of Australia's most ordinary rig came up. So it's like a people post pictures online. So the rules are that you have to, you know, look like you're athletic at some point, (laughs) you know, and that your future sporting career was um, sidelined by, you know, poor coaching selection or an injury at an early age. You can, uh, yeah, still need to be able to run for a taxi. So we don't want people that are kind of completely lost the plot. They need to look like they can still run for a taxi and swing an axe. And people submit their their photos online, and then we have like a Miss World style pageant where people have to do a talent. This is a live event up until COVID, right? Yeah. So we've had a couple in Australia. We did one in the UK, and then we actually flew the three most ordinary rigs in the UK out <laughs> to Australia, put them in like a mansion, ten million dollar mansion with its own private beach. They treated them like the superstars that they are, and then had a, yeah, the Ashes of Ordinary. So the two teams competed against each other um, and the blokes the, the blokes from the UK actually uh, took it out and narrow victory, so. Well, they lacked tan. You know, the rigs were probably the same, but the, the UK blokes had lacked tans. They'd just be lily white. They were quite, quite fluorescent. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this is one of the things I love about smuggling, the people that, that you meet along the way and, and, and days like that. It's very much a... 
uh, kind of, I don't know if community's the word, but yeah, you, you sort of, yeah, yeah you see is. someone else wearing. You're part of a club. See someone else wearing them, there's a polite polite nod and people kind of know the names of the pairs and, and there's just something, uh, something that comes from that growth through word of mouth that, that that's genuine. I must say, I do love the, um, you do have a lot of um, different names and, and a bit of a kind of thing going with, you've got Chili Willies, uh, Flaming Goes, as opposed to Flamingos, Rubber Ducks. Yeah, there's a lot of fun names. I'd encourage people to go to the website and have a look, uh, at least, if, if not buy some. Tell me, um, you have had Tony Abbott, a past Prime Minister, was he wearing smugglers or was he just wearing Speedos? I don't think he's worn smugglers. No, I, I think I think Matt may, maybe a charity pair once, but he might have done you more harm than good the way he got out there. Oh, he had a pretty good rig actually for a prime minister. He's a fit bloke, but you had nine blokes arrested in Malaysia, uh, or you didn't, <laughs> you didn't, but they got arrested at the Malaysian Grand Prix, didn't they? All wearing budgie smugglers. Yeah, so I was at a bucks party in Bali, and I get a phone call saying that like. I didn't really know what had happened. I had a bit on at the time and um, and that these guys had been arrested in Malaysia and we, I'm getting on a plane for, you know, Jetstar overnight flight into Sydney and turn up at the office and there was like a few people waiting at the door, which was a bit unusual. So I went in and then it turned out that they were sort of members of the press and that this big story at the time had broken and, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a... I don't know what the word is, but it was a stress a stressful time, I guess. So the it was a bit unlucky, I think, for them. So so what? Explain what they did. So they'd gone to the every every year they'd go on a holidays and they'd one person would sort of pick where they're going, what they're wearing, and all that sort of thing. So they'd pick Malaysia Grand Prix. He'd got Malaysian flag budgie smugglers done up. So these were the same, similar to what the Malaysian water polo team um, wears. Anyway, they're there having a good. Good time. On the last lap of the race, Daniel, Daniel Ricciardo overtakes the other car and wins the Malaysian Grand Prix. So they're like, how good's this? They've stripped into their smugglers, taken their shoes off and started doing shoeies. <laughs> What's a shoey? When you, uh, it's Danny Ricciardo's signature move where you oh, um, yeah, scull a beer from, from a shoe. And so they're all there thinking, everyone's thinking it's is, you know, pretty funny, taking pictures and that sort of thing. And someone's responsibility there that day was to uphold the spirit of Malaysia. And they thought that this uh, might have been some sort of coordinated attempt to, I don't know, make Malaysia look like like drunk Australians. <laughs> um, and, yeah, they got, got arrested and they were in jail <laughs> for, th- for three nights. Uh, it was looking quite... Um, Quite hair raising for a while there, but no, there was no um, there was no disrespect meant or intended or, or planned. It was a kind of spur of the moment thing. So you've got you've got the media out the front of your office. You, you said you freaked out a little bit, understandably, but you, I, I assume, hopefully, you quickly realise that this is awesome. You know, it's a it's a little step towards putting budgies further on the map, and you know, it's great for the brand. It's a free. It's a, a, a an Aussie brand that likes to have a bit of a laugh. Yeah, I mean the brand awareness aspect of it was good, but you know, and now looking back on it a few years down the track, yeah, I'm, I'm much more relaxed about the whole the whole situation that unfolded. But boys are all in one piece, so yeah. But no, it did. For, did you ever meet them? I I knew one of them prior, but uh, and I've met one of them since. Uh-huh. So they were not like um, 
not like our close friends, but yeah, I sort of I, I I did know one of the one of the fellas on it. They were sort of friends of friends. So yeah, I was I was very relieved when they got back uh, in one piece, and and wouldn't recommend it as a brand uh, as a coordinated brand strategy. Although it was pretty funny, we got a call from I didn't really realise how the media ran at this point in time because we kind of like. Uh, until I've got back from the UK recently, didn't didn't ever do any interviews or podcasts or that sort of thing. We're just sort of laying low. And uh, I didn't notice how the media operates when these kind of like storms sort of pop up. And so we are an early sponsor of the um, Batuta Advocate newspaper and uh, they called them and said, we've heard that this is a stunt between you and Budgie Smuggler to get the name out there. And the guys at Batuta said, yes, that's correct. (laughs) (laughs) So then we're getting called by, I didn't know this though, and then I'm getting called by the press saying, we're printing tomorrow that you and Batuta Advocate have conspired for this press stunt in Malaysia. And we had like three staff at the time. It's like, mate, we didn't even have anyone to do our social media. Like we have not conspired to do this and then eventually the Batuta guys, I think the poor journalists would have lost their job if um, sort of said, hey, no, don't don't print that. We we didn't do it. So they, they did the right they did the right thing. Oh, it's a good story. Well mate, I hope I hope more of those stories come along because surely they've got to be good for the brand and we all need a bit of a laugh in these COVID infected days. Uh, it's a great brand, Adam. Well done, mate, on building something nice and slowly and at your own pace. I have had the idea during our conversation that you know, I've always wanted a little bit of merchandise for the Small Business Big Marketing Podcast. It's 11 years old. It, you know, coffee mugs and stress balls don't do it for me. And I'm just wondering, would people wear a pair of smugglers with my podcast logo on it? Give, I'm going to test it. it. Give I it a know. go. We can, uh, what else have we got? We make, um, <laughs> we make towels here in Australia and we've just figured out how to make bucket hats as well. So, Oh, I like a bucket hat. That's very sort of oasis. You can have a match oasis. You can have a, the band or the like yeah, the desert yeah, yeah, island. The band. The band. Uh, yeah, you could have a. You could have the ensemble. You know, just the the smugglers <laughs> and matching bucket hat, just to bring on the summer. I might do a poll in the, uh, the the Small Business Big Marketing's Facebook tribe and see what they have to say before I put in an order. But mate, thank you. It's 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 lovely to speak to the owner of. What is, I, I do believe, an iconic Australian brand with huge upsides. So I wish you all the best for the coming years. And um, I'll flick you a photo of myself uh, in a pair of smugglers, mate. It, it won't be pretty, but, you know, at least I can say I've come across from Speedo. Appreciate the switch. And, yeah, we'd love to do the custom stuff for you too. Thanks for having us on. What a good fellow and a great brand, by the way. What do you reckon? Small business, big marketing, budgie smugglers and a bucket hat? Are you in? <laughs> I hope so. I'd love that. I'd love to be receiving photos of you guys around the world wearing a pair of SBBM smugglers. <laughs> I might do a future show in one, live stream it. All right, here's my top three attention grabbers from that chat with Chief Smuggler Adam Linforth. Attention grabber number one. I love Adam's approach to growing slowly, and not just slowly, but debt-free and manufacturing in Australia. Good stuff right there. Attention grabber number two. I thought it was interesting that he didn't go full time in the business until 10 years after buying it. You know, every successful business owner I speak to, the minute they 100% laser focus on their idea, that's when the business takes off. And attention grabber number three. 
I love Adam's Australia's Most Ordinary Rig competition. It's a lot of fun, put a big smile on my face and a great way to build free publicity. Now that said, I'd love to see Adam get a bit clearer on what his brand stands for and represents. The brand name itself is full of personality and so are some of his Instagram posts, but I just don't see that same smile carrying across into his website. I'm also not 100% convinced that a women's and kids range is the right thing to offer. You know, I double down on the fact that it's a dedicated range of men's swimwear. You know the old saying, be known for one thing well. Yeah, I could be wrong, but that's just my feeling. I'd also have a serious look at his remarketing campaign. As someone like me should have the budgie smuggler brand appearing in my feed every day, given how much I swim and, you know, I'm waking on the speedos every day. Sorry to put that vision in your mind, but, you know, just bear with me. Anyway, that's what I reckon. I'd love to know what you th- your thoughts are. So give me a buzz on 0480 015 150. Leave your business name or your website address. Get a bit of free publicity if I play it on a future episode. Come on down. It's Timbo's Monster Prize Draw. Yes, indeed, Lee Doodley. It's time to reward another motivated listener for taking some serious marketing action. And today's winner is... Coffee connoisseur Dinesh Nair of followtheblackherd.com. Dinesh writes, hey, Timbo, wow, what a journey that I have travelled with your podcast over the last year. I discovered you by another business owner, Sam the Barber in Corumban. He grabbed my phone and subscribed to your podcast for me. Oh, good on you, Sam. I love that. Over the last seven years, I had a very successful cafe on the Gold Coast and built it to three sites. However, here we go, not all goes according to plan and I found myself with no shop front and owing $500,000. Huge blow to myself, my family and my staff. Anyway, one year later and I find myself back at the foot of the mountain starting up again. Oh, that is impressive, inspiring stuff. This time stronger, smarter, and more focused. So far, I've joined Cham Tang's online marketing with... From the top, three, two, one. So far, I've joined Cham Tang's online marketing course, which I'm halfway through. Cham is a past guest to this show. He's awesome. Bit of a Facebook expert. I've started a business module to tackle an industry worth $5.5 billion in Australia. Go for it, Dinesh. I love that. I've listened to so many guest stories from different industries and have picked up little tips along the way, like packaging, customer service, CRM tools, standing out in front of your competition, becoming an expert in your field. The list goes on. Also, just want to say to your listeners, if you are in a difficult position, then reach out and seek help as there are others that can help you. You're not alone. That's great advice, Dinesh. Fully support that. Once again, thanks for your podcast, Timbo. It's changed my life. Let the adventure begin. Dinesh Nair, followtheblackherd.com. Dinesh, you have won a full range of Liars non-alcoholic spirits, vouchers to use at Sendall and Tradies. You get promotion on this show, a backlink in the show notes. Everyone else, email me, tim at timreid, reid.com.au. Share one idea that's working for you and what impact it's had on your business. If I read it out on air, you win. Hey, if you'd like to keep the conversation going, be sure to join the Small Business Big Marketing Tribe on Facebook. We currently have around 700 members and they're sharing ideas and pushing each other to be better business owners every day. 
Next week, we catch up with New York-based Mike Grande of Rock Out Loud. Now, he's the founder of a new music teaching platform that has saved the businesses of thousands of music teachers globally as this pandemic stopped any face-to-face teaching. It's a great story. If you've got something to tell me, then be sure to give me a buzz, 0480-015-150. Put it in your phone under Timbo or Marketing Gold or anything. I don't mind. If you're picking up what I'm putting down over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ, then you'll find 524 more episodes on the Podcast One Australia app. And please let other business owners know about the show. The more, the better, I reckon. What do you reckon? It's presented by me, Timbo Reid, and piece by excruciating piece pulled together by a team of high-functioning millennials over at Podcast One Australia. Until next time, thank you so, so much for tuning in. I really appreciate the time you give me. May your marketing be the best marketing. Bye for now.